Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. First Timothy chapter 3, the last few verses of this chapter as we are marching our way through this letter from Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. If you're visiting with us, or you're newer, you're just checking out Crosspoint, or you're checking out Christianity, it is our custom here to just work through books of the Bible, and we find ourselves right in the middle of a small little New Testament letter called 1 Timothy, which means that it's the first letter that this man, the Apostle Paul, who's this towering figure in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, wrote, in fact, only in the New Testament, but he wrote this letter to a young pastor named Timothy. It's called 1 Timothy because he wrote another letter called 2 Timothy. And it's our custom here to just work our way through books of the Bible. And we do this because we think, I'm not so um, uh, presumptuous to think that you would remember anything I say in particular from Sunday to Sunday. But I think that as we marinate and bake ourselves in books of the Bible over long periods of time, as we work our way through them, I do think that the, the message and the, the thing that God wants to say to his people through the centuries in particular books of the Bibles is more likely to settle in our hearts. So for example, we worked through the book of Daniel for several months before we got into 1 Timothy and this idea of Christians being exiles in a hostile land is something that I want all of us to remember as we journey through the Christian life. And then as we look at 1 Timothy, the setting here is that Paul is writing a letter to a young pastor who is tasked with organizing and leading and caring and establishing this new church that has been established as a result of the Apostle Paul's ministry and taking the gospel to this pagan, idolatrous city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day western Turkey. And this city, Ephesus, was a great uh, cultural center on the coast. It was uh, filled with false worship of false gods, but yet great education. And it was one of the real high points of Greek culture. And in the book of Acts, we read about how the Apostle Paul takes the gospel to the city of Ephesus and literally turns it upside down. In fact, there were riots because of the preaching of the gospel there, where these uh, people that were blacksmiths that would make little figurines of Greek goddesses, particularly Artemis or Diana, that they began to become Christians and they began to burn down these little statues that they were making. It was affecting the economy and the, world, the city was in riot. And, and so Paul establishes the church and then continues on to preach the gospel elsewhere and leaves this young man, Timothy, to establish this church. And so 1 Timothy is all about life in the local church. But it's not just about that in and of itself. There's a greater thing going on here that we've been talking about, and I hope you'll see again, especially today, that Paul, and obviously the Holy Spirit who is writing through Paul, is interested, is very intent on going beyond just order in the local church for the purpose of why the church should exist in this way, so that through the life of the local church, God might display his glory and grace to an onlooking world. In other words, another way of saying it would be that God intends to use his people and their life together as a kind of evangelistic display to an onlooking world. So the good news of the Bible is the gospel, and God intends for the gospel, what he has done in his son, through his work on the cross and his life and death and resurrection and ascension, to be displayed, to be embodied in how his people live together. And so I don't think anything can be more important for us as Christians than to think about what it means to live together in light of the gospel as Christians. So with that, let's read just a few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The guys that have hung around me here on staff for a while know that this is one of my favorite passages. We quote it a lot. Just three verses here, and uh, then we'll work our way back through it. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But I am writing these things to you. Oh, by the way, just note there that because of some providential circumstance, Paul is delayed and he can't say these things to Timothy in person. He has to write a letter, which then becomes for Timothy. 
Does nobody else appreciate the providence of God? Like God knew that he was going to need a letter to help instruct his church through the centuries. I just like to keep these on. This kind of makes me feel more. Just, just through the centuries. And so he causes Paul to be delayed so that we could get First Timothy. Praise God. In other words, sometimes things that we think are hindrances are somehow worked in, not, not sometimes, all the times, worked into the providence of God in our life for our good. Oh, man, that was good. I didn't even mean to say that. We're already in, just one sentence in. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit that has has caused this word to be written by many different authors through the centuries, compiled, and how by your care and providence you have superintended this word to be collected together to be your Bible for us. Because you have breathed it out, you've inspired it. It is without error. And because it is your word, and you've preserved it without error. It has all authority. May we subordinate ourselves to your word this morning. And may you teach us wonderful things from your scriptures. May believers in this room be chastened and encouraged and convicted and spurred on to love and good deeds. May people that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, may you, by your sovereign grace, give them life so that they can have faith in Jesus. And may you, may you cause us all to fall more deeply in love with your church and with your plan in the church. I pray that you do these things for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's our... Our outline for those of you that are taking notes, and it'll just kind of unfold on the screen as we work our way through. In this short text, I think we see three truths about the church, and then we see three implications from these truths about the church. But before we dive into these three truths, there's many different ways that you can look at the Bible. Um, you can take a theme, like maybe the theme of uh, the atonement or the Lord's work through his son, what Jesus has done, sacrifice. And you can look at that all the way through the Bible. Maybe you could look at the theme of God's love and you could look at that theme and see how the whole scriptures sort of uh, work this theme in. That's a wonderful way to look at the Bible. Another way, and I think what we see in this text, is this idea of God's presence with his people is one of the great themes of the Bible. In fact, in the garden... We see God with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and then because of their willful rebellion, they are excommunicated, in a sense, from God's first church, from the garden, from his presence. And because of their sin, God issues them a death sentence. He says, because you have sinned, you will surely die. And we see then death, separation from God enters into humanity. And what does it mean to die? It's not just physical death, but it is to be separated spiritually from the source of life, which is God. And so in that moment, humanity is dead in our sins, and we are separated from the presence of God. So we start dwelling with God, and then because of our rebellion, we are separated from God. And then the rest of the Bible, until the end, is this great grand mission, this love story of God about how he is working to reconcile a people back to himself so that they can dwell with him. Now, the problem that consumes a major part of the Bible is that God is holy. And we, because we are now by nature, because of our first parent's sin, sinners, we are separated from him. So, much of the Bible is concerned with how can guilty, rebellious, sinful people be reconciled and dwell with a holy God. And so we see in the Old Testament, he 
He creates a way for his people Israel to be back into his presence through their obedience to his law and the sacrificial system that he sets up. But all of this is just a kind of temporary shadow. It's insufficient. It doesn't fully accomplish it. And it's meant to point us to Christ who becomes the the new temple, the new sacrifice, the true and better sacrifice that now through him we can be reconciled to God and it points forward to the end of the Bible where God promises that he will finally and fully vanquish all evil and sin and he will dwell with his people forever. And so the church is to be this place where God dwells with his people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So three truths. So we're going to look with, through that lens, we're going to look at three truths from the church. The first, and let's look again at verse 15. Paul layers on top of itself three truths, three statements about the church that I want us to stare at and, and, and behold. It's verse 15 again. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. There's that first thing that we want to see, the household of God. And the truth that I want us to see from this one statement is that the church clearly is meant to be a family. He uses this analogy that the church is a kind of household. And who lives in households? Well, families live in households. So the church is to be a a family. Now, when we think of family, I think we tend to think of people that are more like ourselves, maybe a biological family. You know, you have your mother and father and all of the, the biological children that come from those, those parents. But when the Bible talks about the family of God in the context of the local church, it expands that to not a, a, a mere physical family, but a spiritual family. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to this same church that Timothy is, is pastoring in the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of the great passages in the whole Bible about the life and the composition of the local church in light of what Christ has done. So to understand this text, before I read Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, you need to understand that the world at this time is separated basically into two groups of people. You have the Jews and you have the Gentiles. And Gentiles were basically everybody that was not Jewish. And so the Jews is the nation of Israel that God in the Old Testament, all the way back early in the book of Genesis, God comes down and selects one man named Abraham. And he says to this one man, by the way, at that point, Abraham is just another, just another human, just wandering the earth, not looking for God. But God comes to him and he selects this one man out of grace. And he says, Abraham, through you, I am going to make a people. And through this people, I am going to bless you, I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to do this not just because I love you and the people that will come through you eventually, which would be the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but that so that through you, I can bless all the nations of the earth. So in a sense, he's using this people to be a kind of cocoon of his presence so that God could dwell with these people so that through God dwelling with these people he might display his glory to an onlooking world so that all of the nations would come and bow down to him and be his people again. And so God is is gathering a people and you have this for the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament you have this enmity, you have this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And one of the great mysteries of the Bible up to this point is, how is God going to be the God for all peoples when he seems to be just concerned with this one nation, but all the while along through this one nation, he's been saying that through your life together, I'm going to display my glory to all the nations so that they will come to see me. But up to this point, the Jews and the Gentiles are in enmity. They're in conflict with one another and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come not just for one particular group of people but to break down barriers between all people so that all peoples whether Jews or Gentiles might be part of the family of God so with that let's read in Ephesians 2 verse 11 Paul says therefore because of what Christ has done the son of God bearing the wrath of God for all those Jew and Gentile that would turn and trust in him, put their hope in what he has done, not in themselves. Therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcisions. In other words, you were called unholy by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promises of the promise. In other words, you were not a people of God. You had no hope, he continues, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And so what Paul is saying is that these two groups of people that were at, at odds with one another in conflict because one group of people saw themselves as the righteous, holy people of God and the other were enemies of God's people. Jesus has come to break down that middle wall of separation and put them together and make them one new man, one new family. And then in verse 19, let's skip down a little bit and he picks up and he says, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, this is radical news that Paul is speaking to the Ephesians. He's saying that you people that have been at one another's throats for centuries, because of what Christ has done, you are now reconciled if you will put your faith and hope and you are part of one new family. And friends, for us to appreciate that, it would be, I've said before, like I grew up in the 70s and I was scared of, of uh, Russia and I was scared of nuclear war and I was especially scared of all those crazy people that you know, we look at the latest Soviet leader. Remember Gorbachev? You don't remember him because half of you are under the age of 30. And you're like, I, I've heard the name before, but I have no idea. But Gorbachev used to have a birthmark on his forehead. And there was all these crazy people like, ah, it's a sign of the antique. I mean, we, I was just psyched out. And it would be like in the late 1970s, early 80s, when we were at this great conflict with Russia, that the implications of the gospel would say that for those that are putting their hope in Christ, you're now one, whether you're American or Russian. It would be like in our modern times if people that are on opposite sides of the political spectrum, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a, there's a presidential election coming up in November, and apparently people say that there's kind of like a contrast on either side. I don't know, just, and it would be like Trump supporters and Clinton supporters as a consequence of your faith in Christ, he has broken down the middle wall of separation and you are now one family. And for us, we're like, wow. To, to an even greater degree, centuries of conflict. The church is to be a family. Just consider the implications. Just one question. I didn't mean to spend this much time on this, but just one question. Are we more whatever, Southern, Republican, Democratic, conservative, liberal? Are we more, whatever the lens, none of those things are necessarily evil in and of themselves. Are we more white or black or Hispanic or rich or poor than we are blood-bought, redeemed children who have been made part of the family of God. And the argument here that Paul is making is that the church is a household that supersedes all of the temporary distinguishing marks between people. Consider that as we think about life in our fallen culture. Think about that as we, as we post on Facebook and as we speak about people to our own demographic, about people in other demographics, consider what it means to be part of the household of God, this eternal redeemed family. 
Secondly, the church is where the living God dwells. Now, in one sense, in one sense, God is everywhere all the time. Of course, we know that. He is omnipresent. Just read Psalm 139, where King David, uh, he meditates on this great truth, and he says that, where can I go from your presence? You know, I can go to the other side of the sea, and behold, you are there. I can go down, he says even metaphorically, into the depths of Sheol, or into the, the very inner parts of the earth, and behold, you are there. So yes, the Lord is everywhere at all times. He's omnipresent. But what I think is at view here when Paul says, after he says the household of God, then notice he says, which is the church of the living God. He's picking up on Old Testament language where over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God through his leaders, through his prophets, through the men that he raised up, would remind his people that he was with them, that he was among them in a special, powerful, poignant way. So we're just going to breeze through a bunch of Old Testament passages very quickly here, just about three or four of them. Don't flip there. We'll have it on the screen. In Exodus chapter 25, after uh, God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, God, through Moses, is commanding the people that they would build for him a tabernacle and eventually a temple, a place, a physical place where he would dwell with his people physically on earth. And so in Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9, He says, and let them, this is God speaking through Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. And an interesting thing about the very specific nature that God tells Moses about this tabernacle and this inner place of his presence, a lot of it is meant to remind Israel of God dwelling with his people Adam and Eve in the garden. And so he's reminding them of the time before sin when he dwelled with them. Then to Leviticus chapter 26, we see in the Old Testament law where, in, uh, where Moses is issuing this, this uh, prescription and detailed instruction on how they are to approach God because of his holiness and their sinfulness and how they are to sacrifice animals as a kind of temporary picture of their unworthiness to enter into God's uh, holy presence. And, and there's this whole book of Leviticus that talks about the sacrificial system, which isn't just a boring collection of strange animal sacrifices, but it's meant to be a kind of picture of the true sacrifice that will come later, which is Jesus. And all of these sacrifices are so that God's people can dwell with a holy God. So look at Leviticus chapter 26 on the screen, verse 12. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and have made you walk erect. And all of this comes after God giving this very detailed prescription on how they should sacrifice these animals as a way of showing that a sacrifice, something needs to be sacrificed in order for them as unholy people to enter into God's holy presence. And of course, as I've mentioned several times already, all of this is just pointing towards the true sacrifice, Jesus, who will once and for all do away with sin so that we as unholy people can be made holy and dwell with God again, which is the point of the whole Bible. So Leviticus 26, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, again, we see this great instruction about how God desires to dwell specifically with his people, starting in verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God, verse 15, is in your midst. He's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroys you from off the face of the earth. His point is, is that God is holy and he desires to dwell with his people. We won't take the time to read it, but in Joshua chapter 3, when God's people are on the edge of the promised land, going back into this place that God has promised them, Joshua gets up and he says, this is how that we will know that the Lord God is with us. 
When we put our foot in that river, it will part and we will walk across it. And there's this theme of God desiring to dwell with his people. So think about this, friends. Just think about how casually we, by our nature as Americans, just think about our life together and even what we're doing here on Sunday morning. It's just kind of another option of a bunch of things to do for many people in our culture. But if we connect what we're doing here as the gathering of God's people with the instructions of how God intended for his people to gather together in the Old Testament, we see this beautiful, holy seriousness that God intends to dwell with his people in poignant, miraculous, beautiful ways. Now listen, I know it's just another sleepy Sunday in the South after football season has started, and don't think I can't tell. Every Saturday night, I just kind of go through the line of what all the local teams, you know, the local SEC teams did. For the majority of us, it was not a good Saturday. And that affects, I can just see it on you. You're like, I'm not busting your chops. I mean, listen, I, I, I get it. But think about how we sort of go through the motions gather. And what the Bible actually says, God's intent for the gathering of God's people is to be. You may say, oh, Brad, well, that's that the Old Testament. They were, you know, there were different things going on. There. No, no. Let's go to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to how God describes the church. 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. Let's start in verse 14 because it's the context of what's going on here. And Paul is writing to a very wicked and carnal church that was, you know, giving themselves to all sorts of idolatry and paganism and carnality and is still involved in all sorts of sinful activities in the culture. And God is saying to this Corinthian church, hey, look, I want you to separate yourself from this old way of living so that you might be together and worship me so that through your sanctified, separated life together as a church, I might dwell powerfully among you, so that then the onlooking world would see the glory of God amongst my people and be drawn to me. Do you see that? And isn't that exactly what God intended for Israel in the Old Testament? So I want you to see this congruity between God's mission in the Old Testament and God's mission in the New Testament. It's not two contradictory messages. It's really the gospel is just in seed form in the Old Testament. So what is revealed in the New is as a seed or a shadow in the Old. And in the Old Testament, God is gathering a group of people called Israel Not because he loves them more than anybody else, but because that through them, he's going to call the people to be separated, to live away, so that their life together will be an embodiment, a display of his grace, so that all the other nations of the world can be blessed through the life of Israel. And that's exactly what he intends for the New Testament church to be. So in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? This is just a rabbit trail because I have a daughter. If you're a young girl, I think one implication of that truth right there is that you don't need to be a missionary dater, okay? You, you, if you're a Christian, well, actually boy or girl, uh, don't, I don't care how cute he is. I don't care how sweet she smells. If they don't know Jesus... You do not need to yoke yourself to them. One person agrees. All right, thank you. <laughs> now, you may be attracted to them, and you may hope and pray that the Lord moves on their hearts, and you may invite them to Bible study, and you may bring them to church, but don't give your heart to somebody that is an unbeliever. It is disastrous. It's disastrous. Yeah, I could go on. I won't. Verse 15. What accord has Christ with Belial? It's a false God. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
for we are the temple of the living God. And so he's saying, separate yourself from these people and, and, and separate yourself. Why? Not because God intends for the church to be a sort of closed off, cranky, angry, conservative community that's mad at the world, but because as he gathers his people together and as they struggle to care for one another and love one another and be patient with one another and help one another fight sin, they will be a clearer display of what it means to follow Christ to an onlooking world. So it's separate yourself so that you can go back out on mission once you have been sanctified and encouraged. Do you see that? So he keeps going and he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So you see the point there, that the church is to be a set-apart, sanctified group of people. Does it mean that we're holier than other people? No, it means that we're still struggling with sin. But because of Christ's righteousness, we have been made right with God, not because of anything in us. And we, as we gather together, are doing the most important thing in the world when the local church gathers. That there are powerful men and women that gather in New York, in the United Nations. There are powerful palaces and king's thrones and presidential desks and, and cabinets and prime ministers that are gathered all around this world that meet all the time. But friends, I submit to you that there is no more strategic, no more important, no more eternally valuable gathering than the gathering of the local church across the world week in and week out. Because God has intended to make his glory known through the church, which is where he dwells with his people. And imagine how graceful, I mean, just think about how graceful he is. I mean, despite our dusty, messed up, half-asleep, monotonous, grumpy attitudes. God dwells with us anyway, doesn't he? (laughs) And finally, the church is to be the display of the gospel. He says there at the end of verse 15, it's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In uh, Ephesus, during this time, there was this seventh wonder. It was one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world, and it was the temple of Artemis or the Greek god, goddess Diana. And it was uh, just this incredibly ornate and huge temple. Maybe you can remember from school the, the Greek Parthenon in um, Athens. It's this huge rectangular building. It looked very much like that. It would be a huge rectangular building dedicated for worship to this goddess Artemis in Ephesus. since been destroyed, but at that time it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And what was noteworthy about Greek architecture when they would build these temples to their false gods is they would, and you've probably seen this in pictures, they would put the columns on the outside of the building. So the very edge of the roof would be where the line of great columns are. And so really as you're walking up the stairs, the first thing that you approach as far as the exterior of the building is these huge columns. And then you enter into a kind of portico and then interior than as walls that then you enter into this this building and I think what's happening here is Paul is is writing to this Ephesian church and all of these Ephesians who would have been very familiar with this great temple of Artemis that had these pillars on the exterior of the building that were very prominent in Greek architecture holding up these images these carved out images of this false goddess Diana, and he's saying that the church is to be like that. He's giving them this picture that they would have been familiar with, and he's saying that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And what's the truth? The truth is what then he breaks into. It's the gospel. It's this great hymn, this great song that he breaks into in verse 16, where he says this, "'Great indeed we confess.'" is the mystery of godliness. What does he mean by mystery of godliness? I think that's the question of the scriptures. How will a sinful people be made right with a holy God? And the answer to that mystery, that question, 
is the gospel that the church is tasked with holding up. This is what we are to do. This is our mission. We are a pillar and buttress of this great news. And he breaks into this hymn, which was likely something that the early church sung and confessed together as they gathered together. He says, speaking of Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh. In other words, God became man. Think about that. Jesus, the eternal son of God, fully God, became fully man. Hebrews says he did this so that he could identify with us in every way. And he lived in this life as a man, yet without sin. And then he laid down this perfect life on the cross. He laid down his righteous, obedient flesh on the cross. And then he absorbed the punishment of God for all those that would turn and trust in him. And then he says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Meaning that Jesus died as an innocent man on our behalf and he was raised again by the Spirit of God. He resurrected from the grave. After he was vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection, he was seen by angels there at the tomb when the disciples go running to the tomb. And there are the angels there greeting the disciples saying, He is risen. He is not here. He is seen by these heavenly beings. His resurrection is witnessed by the heavens. And then through his disciples for the end of the age, it is proclaimed among the nations. Jesus' message is not just for a particular group of people, but it is for all, for all types of people as we looked at in chapter 2. He is to be proclaimed among the nations. He is to be believed on in the world And then he is taken up in glory in his ascension. Jesus, the risen king, the son of God, fully man, fully God, resurrected, defeated death, sin, and the grave, is now ascended and as Romans 8 says, is reigning supreme over all things, interceding for us. And so just encapsulated in those six short statements is The gospel itself, Jesus lived as a man perfectly, died in the place of all those that would put their trust in him, rose again in victory, was believed and preached and is being preached to this day and now has ascended and reigns supreme over all things and commands all people to turn and trust and believe in him. Friends, that's what we exist for as a church. So three brief implications from this. One, and I realize that I have been weaving this into much of our messages in First Timothy, and I think it's just clear and something that we need to keep coming back to is that Christians should be part of the local church. Now, as we've said before, you, you will not find a verse in the Bible that said Christians should join a local church. But I think it's just, it's woven in the fabric of the New Testament, Notice that these letters are written to churches in the New Testament, many of them. The church at Philippi, the church at Colossae. Well, how did they know who was part of the church? I submit to you that although they might have not done it the way Americans do it in our culture, like next weekend we're having a membership class where we're going to pass out notes and we're going to go over. I don't know that they were quite that formalized in first century Christian culture, but I think that however they did it, there was a, some sort of formalized relationship between the leaders of a local church and the people that were part of the local church. One of the ways that I think we see this is that we see implicit, not implicit, but explicit commands all throughout the New Testament about how Christians should submit themselves to the life of the local church, how that they should know who their leaders are. We just talked about elders and deacons. Well, how do you know who your elders and deacons are if, and how do your elders know who you are if you're not somehow in some sort of formal way part of a local church? Now, here's the thing. Okay, because I think we've made this argument a lot. But here's the thing is I know that many of you are reticent to sort of formalize your relationship either with this church or some other church for a few reasons. One, you, you are s- suspicious of my motivations or our motivations. There he goes again. He just wants a big church. (laughs) Listen, uh, there was probably a time in my young, idolatrous, man-pleasing, pastoral heart that I wanted a big church. 
after starting this church 11 years ago and now hoping to do this for the next couple decades, I don't necessarily want a big church. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, brother. There was this Scottish pastor back in the 1800s who was a seminary professor and a Scottish pastor as a mentor to young men. And he wrote a letter to one of his young students who had just graduated from seminary and had taken a country parish. And he knew that this young man was sort of jealous of his classmates who had large churches in the city in Edinburgh. And he wrote this letter to this young man and he says, I know the vanity of your heart. And I know, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, I know that you look at your classmates and desire a bigger congregation and more people to pastor. But he says, consider that on Judgment Day, as Hebrews 13 says, that you will have to stand before the Lord and give an account of those that you have led. And on that day, you will think that you have had enough people. And I think about that verse a lot. So you may be suspicious and think, oh, Brad just wants... We, friends, we, we do not just want to add to our church roles, but we want to be good shepherds of your soul. And we don't want to give you false assurance by making you think that you're okay with God when you may believe something that's really false by not ever knowing who you are and sitting down with you and hearing how you became a Christian and ensuring graciously that you have a biblical understanding of the gospel and then finding ways that we can come alongside you and serve you and pray for you and plug you into the life of the church. And I think that the mechanism, just the the prudential wise way to go about that in a group this large which is much larger than the church at Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi, with a group of hundreds of people like this, I think that it just implied that we should have some sort of formal connection with the local church. I just plead with you, consider being known by your leaders and being in some sort of formal relationship with either this local church or if this isn't a place for you, then some other local church. One way to do that would be to come to the membership class next weekend and to hear more about what we are all about. So you're suspicious maybe, that might be one obstacle. And the second obstacle that you may have is maybe, and I know this is the case with many of us, is that we've been hurt by the local church. You've been hurt. And I just, I, 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 oh man, church pain is, is often some of the deepest kind of pain, isn't it? It's, it's just hard, I get that. But can I graciously, pastorally, just sort of shepherd you by pushing on you a little bit and challenge you that you may be nursing that bad experience and giving that bad experience, as bad as it may have been, more power than it deserves. You may be taking that thing that was maybe very bad and you may be saying, you know, Jesus, I know you died for the sin of all mankind. And I know that you can cover a mold. I know that you can heal every wound. But not this one, Jesus. I need to hold on to this because I'm mad at some other Christians. And so I'm going to nurse on this little thing. And I'm going to keep my distance from the body of Christ. Because I was hurt ten years ago. Friends, I, man, church pain is deep pain. I get that. But don't make your pain more painful powerful than the grace of God to restore and to heal and to use you, Lord willing, years later as an agent of reconciliation in somebody else's pain. Secondly, Christians should love the church, not just be members of it, but we should love it, like love it. One of the great things that I get to do being the pastor of a younger-ish church, and thank God we're not all young. When we started this church, we were like some of the oldest people. Now we have generations like people's in their 80s and 90s, praise God for that. But we still have a lot of young folks, and I do a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings, and I have never been at a wedding standing there with the bride walking down the aisle, everybody standing, and have somebody in the congregation say, she doesn't look that good in that dress. That doesn't fit. Man, what kind of music is this? That guy doesn't know what he's in for. Ha! No. We know that bride's not perfect. Right? We know that they're going to have challenges. 
but we're grateful for what we're about to see. You realize that this, this right here, plus every other jacked up church in the world with all of its problems is part of the bride of Christ. And so who am I? Who am I to be sarcastic about the bride of Christ? (laughs) Jesus doesn't know what he's getting himself into, marrying that girl. Think about that. I'm not saying that there aren't times to have legitimate critiques in a constructive, God-fearing sort of way. But Christians should love the church. They should love the local church that they're part of with all of its warts. And man, there are warts here. But sarcasm and cynicism and the spirit of our age has so tripped up so many of us that we can't even have a conversation about the people that God has intended to put us together with to love because we are so negative about everything. Christians should love the church. And then finally, Christians should serve the church. And I'm not just talking about organized activities in the church. We talked about this last week, that, about the office of deacon, that we should just be deacons. We should just make deacon a verb. How am I going to deacon today? We should go about deaconing. We should care. We should think about when we walk together in this room, when we scatter throughout the week, I should have a special concern for the 500 and something members of this church, not because I don't care about everybody else, but because I have a special concern because God is wanting me to serve these people in a particular way so that together our life, together with all the other messed up brides of Christ, the little mini brides of Christ around the world that are part of this great grand universal bride of Christ, so that together we can be a clearer picture of what it means to follow Jesus because here's what the world needs. They need this mystery of godliness that Jesus lived and died and rose again and is preached around the world and is taken up in glory and is coming back again. That's why we exist. I end with this quote from this... uh, (laughs) Baptist pastor back in England in the 1800s. His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I know you guys make fun of me, and I try and find other people, but he just said so much stuff so good. Will was putting together the, um, with Karen Ann and Molly and Kristen and Stephen, those are redecorating our new resource room, and we're putting up quotes from uh, all these old dead guys and I wanted this big picture of Spurgeon and, um, and Will and some of the guy kind of came to me, a little intervention, and said, Brad, we know, I mean, how about we just have a quote of Spurgeon and not like a picture of him? You're getting a little, okay, you're right. I, they, they talked me down. I've, I should get counseling, but listen to what he preached. This was less than a year before his death in 1891. These words are so sweet. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, Imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have given themselves to the Lord, first given themselves to the Lord, should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there a church on the earth? Listen to this and hear these words If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, and he's speaking to Christians now, if you're not a Christian, I'm not saying join the church. Figure out who Jesus is first. Don't, 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 I'm not speaking to you if you're not a Christian. If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As As I have already said, the church is faulty. But that is not ex- no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's. 
nor need your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and the guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. It's the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Lord, as we come now to respond to this passage, I know in this room there are hundreds and hundreds of different contexts and experiences and backgrounds. By your Holy Spirit, take this word and apply it strategically into every heart. There are people in this room who do not yet know Jesus, and the last thing I want them to hear is that somehow they need to join the church in order to be made right with God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they are orphans lost in their sin and you, dear friend, must turn from trusting in yourself and you must hear this great confession that Jesus came in the flesh. He died, he rose again, he reigned supreme and that the only way that an unholy person like you, and by the way, all of us are unholy in our nature, the only way that you can be made right with a holy creator God is through the sacrificial substitution of his son on the cross to bear his wrath for you if you will turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope and faith in what Jesus did. And the important word there is faith. Faith implies that you don't have it all figured out. So God, if there's somebody in this room that is maybe hearing wrongly that they need to somehow join a church to be made right with God, Lord, that's the consequence of being made right with God. First, Lord, would you give them a heart so that they can believe and put their hope in Jesus? And then the rest of us, Lord, whether we are part of this church or part of some other church or we're Christians sort of wondering where we're gonna finally settle in, May we fall deeper in love with your bride. May we serve her. Because this is, with all of its faults, the dearest place on earth. And Lord, over the years, would you be so kind as to do beautiful things in and through the life of this local church for the glory of your name and for the joy of all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen.